Thank y'all for being here. It's a great celebratory day to get to um, acknowledge what uh, these high school students have done, celebrate not just them, but their families. It's a joy to reflect on, um, you know, for myself, 13 years here, thinking that three of those um, young adults were in kindergarten when we moved here, and to see the growth and the maturity that that group brings. And let me just say, as pastor, um, AJ's not just talking nice about those kids. They're an amazing group, and they have served our church well. And those that, um, that move on to other cities to go to college, we're excited for them. But um, we will notice when they leave because they're an important part of who we are here. Um, you, we want you, all of you to continue to celebrate them after the service. We have a reception. They have some tables set up in the gym. We have cookies back there. Um, we want you to come and celebrate them. Maybe you've got cards. That's great. If not, that's okay, too. Those Bibles that AJ just gave them are going to be sitting on those tables um, out in the gym, and you can uh, highlight a verse for them, write a quick note to them, that sort of thing in those Bibles. And so um, please, please do that um, after the service uh, today as well. Um, also, um, we have a, a project that we told you about last week. We had some fifth grade students up here, and they have a box set up in the lobby if you want to donate those um, supplies that will go to pack bags that will be basic food and, and hygiene items that will go to people that are in need in our community. So please contribute to that. You should have received an email about that, but if you don't have information about that, um, just ask one of the staff. We'll get you the information. The list is actually out in the lobby of what we need for that project. And again, that's led by our fifth grade students um, here at the church. Um, tonight is the last night of our marriage series, Reimagining Marriage. That will be at 5.30 upstairs in the Family Life Center. And uh, we'll have youth. They will have their um, senior night where the seniors will get to, to share around the campfire and um, spend uh, some time together. We'll also have uh, kids ministry tonight. And so we'd love for you to join us. We'll have some small groups meeting tonight too. So if you haven't been here on a Sunday night, um, come tonight. We'll plug you into a small group or you can come to the marriage series. Um, you're welcome to come. Um, it's the last of four nights, but you won't miss anything. I mean, you'll have missed some, but it's okay. I guess that's not the way to say it. The first three sessions were important too, guys. But if you come tonight, you'll be able to, to catch up and still have a benefit from what we do tonight in there. But now turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. And we'll just continue to unpack the Word of God from the book of Proverbs, um, a challenging book, a difficult book, and yet a, a really, really practical book. And that's, that's where we are. That's, that's the heart of this morning, is the practicality of the book of Proverbs. Um, those that watch culture, society, I'm sure you recognize that we as Christians live in a difficult place in world history, in the culture of our nation, in the culture of the world, we face significant societal challenges. And many have noted that one of the challenges that the church faces is that we've moved from a culture that was somewhat positive to faith, positive to Christianity in particular, to a world that's now what's called a negative culture, where we have a culture that's not just indifferent to faith. We had that for a little while. Once we had a positive culture that was supportive of faith and Christianity, and then we had sort of a neutral culture that just sort of live and let live, and now we actually actively live in a culture that on some tenets of our faith is actually a negative culture that dislikes some of the ideals that we hold dear. So just as an example of what this looks like, there, were, there was a time within history, within our nation's history, in which the Christian view of of family values was a cultural view, was accepted and, and encouraged within the culture. But now we find ourselves as those that, that look at scripture to get our way of life and to understand our ideals and values. We see that the culture is now negative towards scriptural's view of things like sexuality. And so last week we jumped into Proverbs chapter five together and we presented what is in today's world an old fashioned view of sexuality relationships, an old-fashioned view of what the stand against adultery should be and what wisdom entails. So that was last week. This week we continue to build a kingdom culture in the midst of a negative 
culture. And I think it's, it's fair and it's helpful for us to recognize that. that. That everything that we've said in Proverbs so far has been practical and helpful for Christians. Some of it is helpful and acceptable in today's world. And some of it is offensive in today's world. Last week in particular was offensive in today's world. And now we come into a, a pattern in, in this this chapter of chapter 6, that there's not this talk of sexuality, but there are some things that are challenging to our culture and our cultural norms as we see and experience them today. Today, we look at wisdom for multiple areas of life, and it, it seems a little bit um, haphazard. Let's use that word. As you look at the book of Proverbs, as if you read through it, there are times when you think haphazard is the organizational structure of Proverbs, because what the, what the author does for us here in chapter 6 is he starts talking about money, and then he moves into work and responsibility, and then he moves into these lists of sins that he's talking about a lot of different categories of sins before he actually gets down to what he really wants to talk about, which is discord and disunity within a group of people. And so within this passage, we have, we have broad categories of instruction for how to live a wise life through Christ Jesus in, as I said, a negative culture, a culture that values the self above all, and therefore, in valuing the self above all, values self-expression in whatever means the self sees as fit. But today, as we look back on what we've learned so far in Proverbs. As I, as I said, some of it, just values of hard work and honesty and responsibility, some of those things can really mesh with contemporary culture. But what I want you to think about, reflect on this morning, is that our attempt this morning, our goal this morning, is to build a kingdom culture within a negative, greater culture, where we refuse to just go the way of the world and engage in secular culture as it, as it will have us do. We actually build something different. We build our own way of life with our own kingdom ideals and not the ideals of the secular age. And so this is not a holistic passage that tells us everything about how to do that, but if we put that framework into the book of Proverbs, we're going to start to see there's wisdom for sexuality, there's wisdom for money and money management. There's wisdom for hard work and responsibility. And there's wisdom for how we live in the midst of other people, in relationship and in community. So three categories of wisdom for this Sunday morning. As we look at Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, we'll see first wisdom for money in verses 1 through 5. We'll see next wisdom for work and work ethic in 6 through 11 and 12 through 19. Wisdom for how we live in community. So let's start, verses 1 through 5. We'll talk about money. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Now, let's be real here. I told you we're about to talk about money, and then you didn't see the word money anywhere in those five verses. What you saw in those five verses is, you are, my son, like a gazelle that the hunter is after like a bird that the hunter is after. So run away, flee, get out of the trap that you are in. And so the image is clear, okay? Nobody wants to be the hunted. Nobody wants to be in the sights of the hunter. But how did the person, how did the, the immature son who had not yet been seasoned in wisdom as the father who's writing this to him, how did the immature son find himself in the crosshairs and being hunted. Verse 1 tells us, set up security for your neighbor. Let me tell you what this means. This is, I mean, in our world today, would be like co-signing a loan for somebody else. Setting up security for a neighbor means there's a neighbor that needs money, and you provide the collateral yourself by co-signing for a loan or giving something of your own, 
as a pledge for the stranger to hold money over your neighbor. So in this passage, the neighbor is the one that needs money in verse 1. The stranger is the one that the neighbor is loaning money from. But now, according to the wise author of Proverbs, the problem is that his son can be caught in a snare by giving money to a neighbor so that a stranger can provide money so that neighbor can, can get the loan out. Now, here's what we have to do here. We have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's one of our principles of Bible reading, one of the simple things that we do every time we come to the Scripture. We have to look at what we know from other passages too. We have to look at what the rest of the book of Proverbs says because here's the thing about Proverbs. It's a little bit repetitive. Maybe you've noticed that by now. It's okay if you have. It's okay if you've been like Tim. We're talking about the same things about wisdom every week. Well, for these first nine chapters, there's a little bit of new every week. But as you go through the 31 chapters of Proverbs, which I encourage you to, I hope you're reading it some on your own. Do a proverb a day, you get through it in a month. And you'll see there's lots of repetition. This is not the only time that the author of Proverbs talks about this kind of a deal, about setting up security for a neighbor or giving of your own finances, of your own financial well-being for the sake of another. But, but I hope, I hope you're thinking in your head, well, what if, what if I have a friend, I have a neighbor, what if I have an acquaintance that needs money, that needs help? What do I do? Is Proverbs telling me to be stingy and not help those in need? Because I think that the Bible has something to say about generosity, right? I hope that's your impulse, because the Bible has plenty to say about generosity. The Bible honors generosity. Jesus, in fact, himself wants us to care for the poor and makes that clear in his life and ministry. Jesus has a heart for the marginalized. Jesus has a heart for the sick. Jesus has a heart for those that are broken in many ways, especially those that are broken in their sin. But here Proverbs gives us an important instruction that we have to figure out. What is God's word saying to us here? Here's what I think it's saying. Generosity is good, but if you want to be generous, do it in a way that helps the person and not in a way that could ultimately hurt the person and put yourself at risk. That's the scenario that's being described here. Think about from a modern-day situation. Why would you need, why would a friend, a neighbor, need for you to co-sign on a loan for that person? Because they can't get a loan. And why can't they get a loan? Because there's some reason that the, that the bank, that the lender, has seen them to be irresponsible and untrustworthy in fulfilling the loan on their own. And so what he's saying here is do not put yourself at risk with a loan you cannot afford for the sake of somebody who the lender seems as risky. It's a wisdom play. It's not, it's not a move that says don't be generous, don't help. Here's what, what the scriptures would have us do in other scenarios. When you see somebody that is living in poverty, that is poor, help them, serve them. In fact, the New Testament would tell us, if you see somebody that needs a shirt, give them a shirt. Scripture would tell us it is actually sin for us to withhold help from somebody whom we are able to help. And so this is not saying don't help people in need. It is saying don't put yourself at great risk to enable the irresponsible behavior of somebody who cannot help themselves. That's what this passage is doing. Let me show you. Proverbs eleven fifteen says something similar. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Similar passage, do not put up security, do not put up your own collateral for the loan of another. Verse, uh, Proverbs 22, 26, and 27. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Here's the point of the problem here. This is a scenario in which you, the, or my son, let's say, let's not talk about you for a second, let's just talk about the son here. What the author of Proverbs, likely Solomon, is saying to his son is when you do not have enough money to help somebody in need, do not mortgage your financial future 
for the sake of helping somebody with a need that you cannot afford yourself. Rather, help where you can and encourage them to work for themselves and encourage them to work responsibly to provide for themselves. The scenario that the proverb is seen here is a scenario in which you have one person that is responsible, hardworking, and earned money, and one person who is not. And the person who is responsible is making a mistake, putting themselves at risk for the sake of the person who is not responsible with their finances. So what does the Bible say about helping those in need? Do it. Be generous. Help those in need. But do it in a way that helps and not hurts. Sometimes out of really good intentions, we can, and and Christians are, are guilty of this, churches are guilty of this. Sometimes we can want to help somebody so badly and we see the need that we give and we give and we give. And what we're actually doing is we're contributing to the problem because that person's not learning to take responsibility for themselves and not learning to work for themselves and not learning to provide for themselves. So what the church must do, what we as Christians must do, is we should give generously because the world needs help. We should give generously of finances, of time, of resources. But our giving should be done in such a way that we want to see people work themselves out of the situation that they're in. We don't want to just give money that contributes to the problem because money eventually runs out. We want to teach skills. We want to leverage our resources to help people get their way out of poverty locally and around the world. The world needs the generosity of Christians and the generosity of Christians opens up doors for kingdom conversations in which the message of the gospel can be presented. That's the vision here. We love as Christ loved, but we don't enable people to continue to make poor financial decisions by constantly giving them that band-aid on a gaping wound. That's what the proverb is talking about. Sometimes in our desire to help, we contribute to the problem of poor financial management. What the church needs to do is invest financially and invest in people with more than money, but with actually training, counseling, encouragement. We don't just give money to people, we teach them how to manage a budget, how to make better financial decisions so that they can get out of the consequences of their own actions. What the, pro- what the author of Proverbs is concerned about is you helping somebody financially and then you experiencing the consequences of their own behavior, of their, of their mistakes, instead of them experiencing the consequences of their mistakes. Let me prove it to you. Proverbs is all about you do this and consequences come. You live irresponsible, and consequences come. So in context, this passage about giving up security for your neighbor comes right before this passage about work. And so I presented the view of what this passage says about wisdom for money, but let's take a second now. We'll jump into the next section and think about what it says about work and see if you can connect the dots yourself. This passage is ultimately about responsible behavior. And we want to invest in responsibility, personal responsibility for ourselves and those around us. Look at verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Emmanuel asked me this week as he was choosing the worship set. He said, what are you preaching on? I'd love to have a verse, or I'd love to have a song that goes with, with the sermon. I said, are there any songs you know about the ant and the sluggard? And he struck out, so we just moved on. Verse 7, without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bed in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So here's this passage that tells us about hard work, responsibility, the difference between the sluggard, the lazy person, and the ant. The ant is the standard here. The sluggard is the problem. The sluggard is a key character in the book of Proverbs. He comes up a lot. There's a lot of, of sluggards talk, talked about in the book of Proverbs. Here's the problem with the sluggard. Verse 9. How long will you lie there? When will you arise from your sleep? The, the sluggard doesn't ever answer that question. 
Sluggard perhaps has good intentions. Perhaps he's one of the people that thinks, someday I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to get a job, I'm going to be responsible, blah, 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 blah. But the sluggard won't, number one, make up his mind and just start. The problem with the laziness is he won't even get out of bed to make the first step in the right direction. This is where high school seniors that we were just honoring up on stage, this, is, this can be a message for the rest of your life. Do this and you will see success because this passage has a lot to say to every single one of us, but especially those of us that have some years left to, to make some course corrections and to establish some responsible behavior. And so seniors, this is what it means to live a lazy lifestyle. You'll see the repercussions of it. How long will you lie there? When will you arise from your sleep? The sluggard doesn't have an answer to that. He won't even say, oh, I'm going to sleep forever. I'm not going to get out of bed. The sluggard won't respond because the sluggard has good intentions and little responsibility, little follow-through. The second problem with the sluggard, this comes from actually Proverbs 26, because I told you there's about 10 other passages about the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 15 says this about the sluggard. He buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. You know what, he, what that verse says? That means the sluggard is hungry, but he's too lazy to pick the dish up off the table and to actually get the food back to his mouth. So we have a starting problem here in 6.9, and we have a finishing problem in 26.15. Sluggard won't make up his mind and just go and move, but the sluggard also won't follow through. Even if somebody provides food for him, even if his table is set in front of him and there is a bowl full of food, he'll just sink his hands into it and not bring it up not have the energy to follow through. It's an extreme, it's an extreme uh, visual example, and, and you got to think, well, that, that's, you know, I don't know anybody quite like that, but you know somebody that has all these great ideas and got something good started and didn't follow through. And some of you are like that. And sometimes I'm like that. And sometimes we all have these great intentions of we're going to do this. We're going to do this for, for Jesus. We're going to do this for our family. We're going to engage in this great house project and we're going to add value to our home and all these sort of things. No matter what it is, there's something that your good intentions caused you to start and then you just got bogged down with the difficulty of it. It was harder than you thought. It was, took longer than you thought. You got distracted with other things. That's the way of the sluggard. Slow to get started, but even once he gets started, hard to get him to follow through and actually finish it. The third lesson from the sluggard here uh, comes from 22.13, another proverb. This is what it says. The sluggard says, I love this verse because I didn't know what it meant at first. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Sluggard isn't going to leave his house because there could be a lion in the streets. Let me tell you something about ancient Israel. Let me tell you something about the context in which Solomon was writing this. The idea of a lion waiting in the middle of the street right outside somebody's front door was just as ridiculous in ancient Israel as it sounds to us today. That proverb is set there because he's making fun of somebody who doesn't live in reality. Because if you want to come up with any conceivable reason not to leave your house, you can come up with something. A lion could walk down Walnut Avenue too, theoretically, right? But is it going to happen? No. Is it realistically a personal risk to you to leave your house and go to work because maybe, just maybe, a lion is going to attack you on Walnut Avenue? No. And the point of that proverb is that it wasn't realistic in his day either. It wasn't something that was practically going to happen. But this was a lazy person that was coming up with any and every excuse to not get started, not leave the house, not follow through, and not do the hard thing. High school seniors, adults, everybody in between, 
do the hard things. Set your mind to the hard tasks. Face reality and recognize in this life there are many troubles. There are risks everywhere. Life is scary and dangerous. I get it. But we've still got to do it. We still have opportunities waiting outside the door to live a life that honors Christ, to make a difference in our community, to build a family and and make a difference through our family, to make a difference by doing meaningful work and providing for our family, but also affecting society in positive ways through the work of our hands. We have opportunities to build the kingdom of Jesus, to make disciples, not just in our nation, in our community, but in all nations. All of those opportunities are out there. But you've got to make up your mind to start. You've got to follow through. And you've got to face reality. There are some challenges. But God is with us to overcome those challenges. And at some point, you've got to just overcome the fears and move forward and live life. Because Jesus came to give you life. And Jesus came to give you life abundantly. Life to the fullest is there. It's available for us through the power of the Spirit. God is moving in us to do things, to make a difference, to affect the culture, to affect our communities, to lead our families well and make disciples. So three problems with the sluggard and three lessons from the ant. Those are simple and they're all right here in verses 7 and 8. The ant doesn't need a boss Notice that in verse 7. Without having any chief officer or ruler, the ant is governed by an inner motivation, according to the, the author here. The, the, the issue with the ant is that the ant doesn't need the boss to be watching over her shoulder in order to continue working hard. The ant keeps up her part of the work of the colony regardless of who's watching, regardless of, of what reports get get filed about her or whether anybody notices her hard work or anything like that the ant doesn't need a boss doesn't need watching eyes to work hard how many of us in our work lives work differently when the boss is around work differently when you know that somebody's watching you carefully the ant doesn't need a boss the ant has an inner motivation to work as unto the Lord. Colossians 3:23. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord, as unto the Lord and not for men. That's the work ethic of a Christian. That's the work ethic of a wise person in the book of Proverbs. It's the work ethic of a new covenant Christian who has been redeemed by Jesus. We work for Jesus. Number 2. The ant gathers bread in verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. It means that even when it's hot, even when it's hard, there's no time that the ant takes a break. She works and she moves. Let me tell you something else about about ancient Israel. It was hot. It was hot and summer was hot. And the the visual here is that the, the bread that the ant is gathering in summer is lost, left by a human somewhere. But she gathers it because it's the work that needs to be done. It doesn't matter if the work is hard. The ant does it. And the ant prepares for the future. The ant gathers. And when the harvest comes, she gathers her food for the future when the harvest is no longer there to be gathered. So the three lessons from from the ant are one of inner motivation, hard work, and future preparation. Those are the lessons for us in which the the, the author of Proverbs here is telling us this is what hard work looks like. This is is the example. So Christians, this is is the example that we are given here and Colossians 3.23 puts the Jesus focus that we need, okay? Because here's the thing. We can look at at the old covenant scriptures which are important, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and doctrine. When we look at those scriptures, such as the book of Proverbs, we always have to be looking at them through the lens of Christ. Jesus came to redeem us from our sin. Jesus came to make us a new creation. So how would Jesus interpret this passage to us? I told you, and it's so important, it's worth repeating every single week. Jesus is wisdom in the New Testament. Proverbs, Proverbs paints a picture of what wisdom looks like. And that picture is ultimately fulfilled by the presence 
of Jesus. Because we can't live in full wisdom without the presence of Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all wisdom. So when when Isaiah predicts that Jesus will come as the wonderful counselor, he says what he means is it's like the book of Proverbs is going to be walking with us as Christians. And we are to follow the wisdom of Jesus now above all else. Solomon's not the example. You should look at his life. He's not a great example. Solomon's not the example of wisdom. Jesus is. So everything Solomon says, we interpret through the lens of Jesus. And so what we learn about hard work here, we learn that Jesus wants us to, to work hard whether the boss is watching or not. Work hard when it's easy and when it's hard and prepare for the future. That's what Jesus wants from us. But, but let me tell you something else. Working through the eyes of Jesus means that Jesus is also still the Savior that forgives that, that redeems, reconciles people to himself. And so there's many of us that, that need to look at this passage and say, you know what, there have been times in my life, there have been, been situations, scenarios in which I have been more like the slugger and less like the ant. And Jesus brings grace to that. Jesus brings grace to the failure. Jesus brings grace to the employee that hasn't always Worked hard as unto the Lord at all times. Hasn't always lived like the ant. But what we need to do as we follow Jesus is receive that grace, receive that new life, the life abundantly that he gives us, and now we go work hard. We recognize that Jesus' kingdom is growing all around us. And we look and we see the culture, and we see the culture becoming more negative towards our faith and our values, and yet we see Jesus' kingdom spreading. We see people coming to Jesus in our country, all around the world. People are coming to Jesus. So do we, come, we become hopeless? No. Do we throw up our hands and give up? No. We live with all that much more energy, recognizing that the presence of God still goes with us. And if we work heartily, that means work hard, if we work hard as unto Jesus, it's amazing what we'll see accomplished through the work of our hands, in our vocations, in our jobs, but also in the work of the kingdom that he sets before us. The last section of this passage is wisdom for community. So he's told us, be wisely generous. Help people, but don't help people in such a way that hurts you and them, because then everybody's hurting and nobody's helped. But, so it starts with that, but then he moves on to work hard, as unto the Lord. Work like the ant, follow the example of the ant. But now we have wisdom for community in verses 12 and following. And let's look at this. <clears throat> the last section of this passage is probably going to be familiar. It's probably going to sound like, oh, I've heard that before somewhere. But what's easy to miss in, in the Proverbs is that there are some poetic, there are some Hebrew poetic elements to it. And I'm just going to tell you that at the end of this passage, the point that the author of Proverbs is trying to make is actually kind of easy to miss for a 21st century English reader. So we're going to take our time looking through this to, to understand what is the point of all of 12 through 19 because really there's a single point, a single example that is made. He says it two different ways. Verse 12, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil and continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to turn to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Here's why I say we need to learn something from Hebrew um, poetic form to understand this passage. There's two, time, there's two passages that are similar in structure to this in the book of Proverbs. And they're similar to the structure of verse, verses 16 through 19 in a really powerful way. <clears throat> there's a Hebrew poetic device in which a Hebrew poet says there are three things and a fourth, or there are six things and a seventh. 
And the function of that device, two times in Proverbs, it's three plus one to make the fourth. And then one time here, it's there are six things and then a seventh, right? Each of those times, the point of the passage is the last list item. The overall point that the author is trying to get you to. All of these things are important, but the most important one is the last in the list. It's a poetic device to separate the last in the list from the front of the list. And so twice in Proverbs, there's three plus one to make four. Here, it's six plus one to make seven. And the poetic nature of this passage is really emphasizing in the last half of verse 19 as the point of verses 16 through 19. But then let's back up a second, okay? That's the second half of the passage we're now looking at. Look at verse 12 through 15. Verse 12 through 15 actually follows a similar, a similar path of 16 through 19. There's lists of stuff. There's lists of bad stuff. But it ends in verse 14 with someone that is continually sowing discord. And so here's what Solomon does in this passage. He gives you two different paragraphs, two different poetic stanzas. Let's say it that way. One in 12 through 14, one in 12 through 15, and one in 16 through 19. And in both stanzas, the poetic element ends with the most important thing he's trying to emphasize, continually sowing discord in verse 14, continually sowing discord in verse 19. But this person is not just... Excuse me. Not just somebody that sows discord. We see in verse 12, he's a worthless person. He's wicked, crooked speech. He winks his eyes, signals with his feet that body language matters. Body language is important. There's a way to be rude and disrespectful without saying anything. That's what verse 13 says. So in verse 12, you have the worthless person whose speech is the problem. In verse 13, you see that the worthless person doesn't just have a problem with his speech, he actually has a problem with his body language and his, his face, his eyes, his fingers, his gestures show that he is not in unity with, with the others. Verse 14, you have somebody that has a perverted heart devising evil, continually sowing discord. Verse 15, calamity comes upon this person. Here's what 12 through 19 is saying to us. There is a person that has been given the choice of the wise path and the foolish path. And they've chosen the foolish path. And the person, what they look like outwardly, is somebody that lies, somebody that mistreats others, somebody that devises evil, 16 and 17, you kind of go head to toe. You have problems with with different parts of the body in 16 and 17. But this person has chosen the foolish path. But what the the author of Proverbs is most concerned with in this passage that is proof to the foolish path that he has taken is his treatment of others. His eyes are bad, his tongue is bad, his hands are bad. But the biggest problem is the discord that he sows. The biggest problem is the way that he lives in relationship with others. It is not the fact that his speech is bad is the key problem. It is the fact that his heart has led him to live in disunity and discord among the brothers. So here's how this passage builds on each other. I'm talking 1 through 19 now. I told you, when we talk about money and putting up security for a neighbor in verses 1 and 2, we can't understand that without understanding what it means in in verses 6 and following to practice responsibility. But then in verses 12 and following, we see that what the 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 author of Proverbs is truly emphasizing above all else is community, is unity, is hard work together. So the, practice, so the passage builds in these three steps you see on your screen. Number one, you practice wise generosity. Don't help in such a way that hurts you and the other person. Number two, you work as unto the Lord. That's how you build a different, that's how you build Christians, a counterculture. That you work hard 
whether you feel like you're, you're, you're getting the reward for your hard work or not. If you feel like your boss is underappreciating you, your employer is underappreciating you, you work hard as unto the Lord, as you practice wise generosity. And in the last passage, verses 12 through 19, the application there is quite simple. You sow not disunity, not discord, but you sow community. Last night there were 120, 130 of us gathered between the buildings. Why were we gathered between the buildings? Well, because there were hamburgers and hot dogs. That's point number one. But, but the focus was to sow community. The focus was to build relationship. I could present to you verses 16 through 19 and say what we really need to do is we need to study this medieval concept of the seven deadly sins and here's the passage that gets you to this medieval concept of the seven deadly sins i don't think that's effective because i don't think that's the point of the passage because i think those applications those those adaptations get a little messed up as you go because the point of the passage is the real problem the real the real issue that shows somebody has so has chosen a foolish path is when that person practices friendly fire. Is when that person shows sows disunity, sows discord among brothers. So Christians, how do we live? This is the question I asked us at the beginning. How do we live in a negative culture? How do we live in a culture that is against us? Here's just three practical things. We practice wise generosity. We help those in need in a way that helps and builds responsibility and engages and opens doors for the ministry of the gospel. It's a simple application, and every single one of us can find a practical, easy step to take to show more generosity in a wise way to somebody in need. Number two, we work hard. We work our tails off for Jesus. Y'all didn't expect me to say that, did you? You work hard as unto the Lord. So that you make a difference in your community, in your workplace, in your school, in your office, wherever you are, you make a difference and people look up and you say, why is that person working so hard? He didn't get paid enough to work that hard. You work hard because you know Jesus is watching and Jesus is pleased when his people show personal responsibility. And above all else, The passage, this whole passage, is building to this one concept. The problem with the culture of ancient Israel was when people sowed discord among brothers. And let me ask you this. Do you see that as a problem in the modern church, in the 21st century church? Of course it is. We don't have to think about it too long to see that one of the reasons why this negative culture has developed in which it feels like we're losing ground is because of the way we bite and devour one another is Paul's language for it. That if we fail to encourage one another but instead bite and devour other Christians both within the same church community or in other churches, then we we start to lose the culture, we start to lose the influence, we start to lose the work of Jesus because we're more focused on our own silos, our own doctrinal distinctives, our own things that make us different from those people over there. But we want to build a culture, a kingdom culture, that honors Jesus, that spreads his word to the nations, and what we sow is community. Love for each other, love for the brothers. When we see those in need in our midst, we care, we love, we support. We see those in need in our community, we care, we love, we support. And when we do these things, we have an impact. The world notices. The world notices the love the disciples have for each other, and the world pays attention. I'm going to close this with the example of Jesus. I'm going to ask the team to join me again on stage. Emmanuel and I had a funny conversation this morning. I told you that he wanted to sing a song that had something to do with a, um, with a sermon. I said, I don't know any songs about ants, neither did he. We moved on. This morning he said, what if we read some of Philippians 2? Because he chose a song 
that emphasize the fact that one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. I said that's a great idea because I already decided to read that passage this morning. So God worked something together in the two of us that neither of us expected. But I want to close us with Jesus' example, Jesus's example of sowing unity, of bringing people together in oneness. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by having the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. How do you make Jesus experience joy? The oneness of mind, of, of embracing what Jesus embraced. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, in humility, count one another as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of each other, of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will, as believers in Christ, one day live in perfect unity with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and every other believer who names the name of Jesus. So we get to live in that unity a little bit earlier by, by worshiping together, by praising Him together. So I'd encourage you, let's stand, let's sing, let's in unity praise the name of our God.
Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that on the basis of this belief, we go out as a sent people, commissioned by you, called by your name, and now sent out in the power of your spirit to go, to work as unto the Lord, to be ever more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, to make disciples in all nations live as your ambassadors in the community in which you have placed us. So Father, give us boldness, give us clarity. Father, give us the power of your spirit to speak words of truth and life to the world around us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now remain standing, receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Remember, we have a reception back in the gym for our graduates.